For me, the beauty of ecosystems is surprise is an opportunity, and we're gaining access to unfamiliar expertise through casual liaisons that might become, if we do it right, might become more reliable in the future, but not so reliable that we get locked in permanently. So that focus shifts from a large organization to the small unit, which then becomes the locus of activity for an ecosystem. So you have many ecosystems within ecosystems, networks within networks. But my sense is that the future will focus on smaller, more local, more transient types of relationships. For me, everything is temporal. And part of the no more is this fiction that we live in, that something can be permanent, that builds our pathetic obsession towards being able to pretend to predict the future. And I think that um, the, all of what we're talking about, the nature, is our gym, is our kind of way of getting um, fit and moving towards these other models. Because when you look at like murmurations or mycelium, these are models that say, you know, visitors come in and out and they, they make contributions, they become part or they don't. It's very like come together, go apart in a very dynamic way. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Boundless Conversations podcast. On this podcast, we meet with pioneers, thinkers, doers, and entrepreneurs, and we speak about the future of business models, organizations, markets, and society in this rapidly changing world we live. I'm Simone Cicero, and today I'm uh, joined by my usual co-host, uh, Stina Hekila. Hello, hello, everyone. Today, we're also joined by two returning guests, that uh, were with us uh, when we recorded the, the closing episode of Series 1. With us today, we have uh, uh, Lisa Genesky. Lisa is a board member at uh, Bango, uh, Wheel Ventures, and Boston Protocol, besides being an internet pioneer, investor, and a researcher into themes such as uh, radical instability and trust. Lisa, great to have you back at the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm, of course, delighted to be here and speak with you guys. Thank you so much. And uh, we also have uh, Bill uh, Fisher. Bill uh, is a, a legend of management uh, theory, professor emeritus at IMD, senior lecturer at MIT, uh, and a good friend of the podcast and, and myself since a few years. Ciao, Bill. Great to have you back at the podcast as well. Oh, it's great to be here, particularly with Lisa and Steiner as well. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Where we can start this conversation is trying to pick into your own uh, context and situation. So, Bill, you are, of course, working with uh, so many management leaders and companies all over the world. Lisa, you have been advising so many great companies and you know institutions. If you look into how uh, change and technology is impacting uh, the products we build, the services we bring to the market, the organization we develop, the way we work, uh, what are your uh, highlights in the last two years, but most specifically with regards to the moment we're living now? Lisa, maybe you can start. I think on the side of uh, organizational design and, and leadership, I'm certainly seeing there's a lot lot of uh, kind of synchronized head scratching as kind of a new Olympic sport. I think people are in general, uh, people meaning leaders, if they're confident, 
are actually standing back and declaring that they really don't have a clue. And I think that the idea of that, that you're, you know, leading an organization and at the same time candidly confessing, at least to yourself, that um, I, I li literally don't know what's going to happen next is a pretty unsettling <laughs> uh, place to be. So I think a lot of what we've been discussing and Simona, what you and Stina have um, been focused on in the podcast and Boundaryless has been doing for years is this whole idea. And in fact, it's kind of where we left our last left our heroes. And when the four of us were together several years ago is that we're between this no more and not yet. And the no more, um, what's growing on the no more side is kind of everything, right? Like we have, we have technologies, we have governance, trusted, formally trusted institutions, um, standards of practice, social expectations, climate, like pick a thing. Um, and it's, it's what was one time, at least in our mind, and we made ourselves feel more comfortable that it was stable or, or at least moving slow enough that we could anticipate the general trajectory what's happening now is not that. And, and so it's much more of a staccato pace, your breathless introduction. <laughs> if we take that in sort of at, at a central nervous system level, we, we will all need cardiologists, you know? So, <laughs> so I think part of what um, is happening here is for us to accept that what we knew as um, normal is literally dissolved you know, a question then is like, well, what can we count on? Who can we count on? What are the standards? Um, how do we, where do we go from here? For me, I think that one of the things I've seen is leadership at the level of, of anyone in an organization or anyone with an idea is, is able now with technology and tools uh, and also a bit of chutzpah and courage <laughs> Uh, to step into a space and make proposals and try to get some followers, engagement, momentum, prototyping, learning to happen. In a way, that's made me optimistic because I feel that there's a wide open space for people to come with um, proposals and, and to get support around an idea that, that has a little bit of legs. And on the other hand, on the no more side, I think if people are, are you know, there's, there's a lot of us that want to be able to depend on something. And I think on a daily basis, um, that becomes more and more difficult. So at the organizational level, I, I feel that um, things, when we look at new models emerging, um, like Web3 and uh, DAOs and, you know, these kinds of, um, you know, we can play the blockchain bingo game, but all, but all, all those ideas um, have, they, they much better uh, provide kind of um, bones and, and systems or ways of thinking around uh, old ideas like cooperatives than um, platforms did. And I find uh, for me an, a kind of optimism because there's an opportunity to allow for whether it's the, you know, sourcing energy in terms of electricity or sourcing water or other resources or sourcing ideas that we can get more surface area and more kind of uh, collisions to happen through a lot of these kind of open architectures that are emerging at least at the level of lots of people banging on them and testing them. 
Um, so I find that creates um, both confusion and hope. <laughs> um, I, I think at the product level, um, product market fit is a really is kind of like uh, I, I feel is an old idea now because the idea was I know who the market is and I'm going to bring I'm going to bring this thing that we've designed for this market to fine tune it by engaging. But more and more, I, I find that um, people are after pain, a, you know solving a pain point, and the pain point is moving because the because the market is changing or the circumstances are changing, and so the, this sort of rapid prototyping and doing things in public, testing in public, rap, but more rapidly designing in public, like being less concerned about um, who owns what and more concerned about um, solving a, a pain point. It seems to be something that, that I'm seeing little sprouts of, you know, I'm seeing a, a, like the old model of define, refine and scale, something very linear um, being disrupted by something that's, that's much more um, turbulent and, and at the same time, much more community oriented and engaging. Yeah, yeah, I want to make a connection with, with Bill, you know, because um, Bill, you are well known uh, and, and Lisa spoke about, you know, a few things that maybe are worth highlighting, highlighting uh, difficulty in anticipating what's happening, uh, uh, difficulty in, in reading markets, generally faster markets, more customization needed, more building in public, less design, more prototyping, you know, that's essentially something that I read in, in of course, and new models, you know, but essentially this change in posture no, towards the, the market. You are well known because of your uh, longer uh, relationship with Chinese management that we share because we work together with higher as well. And, and I want to quote uh, Mao Zedong, you know, when he said, everything, has, everything under heaven is in utter chaos, the situation is excellent, right? So my, my question for you is, do you feel that the management community, the, the organization development community, is really in this mood or they are more panicking than, than, than anything else? So that's a great question. Um, I, you know, <laughs> I, I think any question that starts out with a quote from Chairman Mao has got to be provocative. And, 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 and I, think what you see, I think what you see is that, um, so let me, let me, historically, if you look at how industries have evolved, um, th what's brought incumbent, formerly successful incumbent market leaders down over and over and over again historically has been not their unawareness of new technologies and not their, you know, curiosity, but it's largely been the, the inability to get their present organization to be fit for a new purpose. And I think that what we're seeing today is that that's never been more important than, than it is now. So when you think about why that might be, I think a lot of it's inertia, right? A lot of it is, is the overwhelming complexity of modern organizations that just stop people in their tracks and think, this is, I can't do this. Um, and I think that what we're seeing today that was different from only a few years ago is that the change is coming more rapidly. The so-called S-curves are getting shorter. And the, the unknown, the, the script that goes with a new S-curve, the story behind a new S-curve is so profoundly different than what the present has been 
that you know people not only have to deal with their organizations, but they have to deal with a lack of expertise. They, 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 they don't understand how to react. And part of that is that leaders are, are, are probably two decades out of touch with what's going on at the coal face, right? At, at the customer experience level. And so they, they don't appreciate, I think, the pace of change. They don't appreciate how different the customer is today from, from where it was. And their organizations reflect that. So every generation thinks this is the biggest change of, of all. I think we have a legitimate cause to think that that's true at present. Um, and I think that the problem starts more with our organizations than, than anywhere else. That gap between organizational fitness and the problems, the challenges that are going on around them. When I look at what's happening, the organizations that I admire, you know, I'm seeing efforts to give more autonomy to people lower in the organization, um, efforts to create smaller units that have more authority over what they're doing. I'm looking at people who are not trying to decentralize but people who are trying to uncentralize and in the process of do or unorganized, in the process of doing that, they're creating new organizations that, that could take us in the future. So in the long run, I'm optimistic. In the short run, I think we're going to have not only technological challenges, but also social challenges in terms of employment impact, in terms of um merit and who gets to move upward within an organization. Maybe there's no upward anymore. Maybe the, the way we build organizations in the future will escape that sort of legacy thinking about the pyramid and, and, and how you build a career. But all of these for the people involved are sort of overwhelming. The complexity, I think, of, we talk about sustainability, the, the complexity of trying to sustain a career trajectory is overwhelming, I believe, today. More, you know, we're, and, and to be honest, we're not preparing people well for that. We still prepare people, I think, for a past that is no longer uh, present. You said something that resonated with me a lot, you know, this idea of uh, unorganizing which um, carries a message not only of delegation, autonomy, but it carries a message of the crisis of the corporation in itself. So it's like uh, we feel like the, the idea of bureaucracy, it's really kind of ending, you know, crumbling, especially in some parts of the market, I would say. This maybe is an effect of the great resignation and the uh, push to uh, remote work that we have seen in the last uh, few years. So maybe it's more like a structural a crisis of trust inside in the corporation. And, you know, for example, you spoke about uh, we don't have a concept of career that uh, stands the time at the moment, right? Because uh, the idea of career itself was maybe rooted in an idea of uh, organizations that live for long, that have a very much uh, hierarchical structure that with your career you can climb, right? Uh, which is 
not something that works anymore as soon as you look at the organization as a set of uh, loosely coupled units where there is no hierarchy to climb uh, and and then you know the responsibilities about you figuring out what product you want to bring into the market right so I feel like there is a real uh, crisis of uh, scale, a crisis of bureaucracy, a crisis of operations, right? I was, uh, yesterday I was reading uh, uh, an account of the impacts of uh, large language models on, on products and organizations, and somebody came up with this idea of uh, LLM ops, uh, which is uh, essentially the idea of operationalizing uh, uh, artificial intelligence. And I was like, what is the point of having artificial intelligence and having uh, ultra-customizable experiences if then we want to operationalize it because we've, we try to industrialize even the technology that is supposed to put the crisis into the very model of hierarchies and bureaucracies? So can you maybe es- expand a bit into this quest towards unorganizing? I'm a great fan of Lisa's no more, not yet spectrum. And I think that the no more is pretty clear. I mean, I think we look around and we can see in our own organizations with great clarity where we want to do no more. But it's the not yet that is absolutely, I think, it's a moving target. I think it's vague. Um, I think it's changing day to day. And um, I think we all have a sense of where this is going, but that sense is not convincing enough for me to take the first try, right? I'm not going to be the first one to do this. So I think what we're seeing is a great deal of hesitancy born out of a lack of clarity of what's possible. But I think AI, for example, I'm on the board of an AI startup, and I I think that what we see is where this could go. But, you know, the gap between no more and not yet is insufficiently clear to build a groundswell of support for for trying something. For me, that's the gap that has to be addressed in some fashion. And um, it's hard to do when when the technology is moving so fast, but the organizations are remaining so still. I I would say, um, so all those sentences, super as always out of, from Bill, I think that the, um, the organizational models given that they were built on uh, military models and education likewise, you know, it makes sense that they're breaking, right? And and the whole idea of a career going to Bill's point uh, or one of the points was um, a whole I- the whole idea of a career was absolutely like you enter, <laughs> start here. It's like a video game. You start at the bottom and you work your way up and then you, you know, you get lots of um, a, a high score. And I think that the the game that we're playing is unclear. You know, if you're if you're just starting your career today, the idea that you're after a title or that you want to enter into a large corporation is absolutely not the case. I think people are, you know, depending on who we're talking about, uh, artisans versus you know somebody who's very um, into business or science or something else. Often, you know, I would say that as a, as a business person, I've moved through my career as an entrepreneur and, and as an author, as, as someone who has like a portfolio of projects. And I think that increasingly, the, you know, that's the way that people are seeing their careers, that you're intrigued by someone, you, you kind of stodge with them, you take a fellowship, you learn from them, you snuggle up to them and try to, you know, understand their perspective. 
I think that we need to be able to be multilingual in, you know, metaphorically speaking, that we need to understand a lot of different industries, models, um, ontologies, perspectives. Empathy is something that's missing and fundamental to learning um, and often missing because we, we grow up or have historically grown up inside of a, a school, a community, a corporation that's kind of been um, an indoctrination of how we see the world. When that capsule breaks, we're kind of free radicals floating around and need a decoder ring. So I feel like, you know, at an individual level, I see a lot of people in that place. I don't know, organizations, I, I think our institutions are not trusted right now. Um, I think that there's uh, a real challenge if you're sitting running an institution, how to um, take it apart in a way that doesn't uh, kill the, the value that is created or captured, but at the same time allows you to port that model into something that will attract and retain talent, will attract and retain customers, um, that gives you a better chance at having more surface area to be able to create more collisions, prototypes, experiments, and, and products that actually make sense in the market. And it's true for, you know, universities, and it's true for hospitals. And it's, it's not just, um, you know, business, like the, the way that we think about corporations, but I feel that institutions in general are going through this fairly massive transformation, but it, it will ma maybe hopefully make sense when we look back, but living through it, I, uh, for a lot of people, it's just a, a big head scratcher. One of the things, I agree completely with what Lisa's saying, and one of the things that I think it affects is the way in which um, people not only advance in their profession, if you will, but also the way in which they're seen socially. I think for the last, I don't know, two or three decades, there's been an emphasis on specialization, on becoming what used to be called I-shaped individuals, where, you know, the, the depth of knowledge was large and the breadth of knowledge was, was narrow. But I think that in the, over the last 10 years, I, uh, AI is accelerating this, but it, it didn't begin with AI. I think that um, there's been an ability to access expertise in other ways than going through university and the like. And so I, I think that what we need are more and more people who are T-shaped, who are able to speak these different languages or at least be sensitive to the different languages that Lisa spoke about so that they can um, identify talent that needs to be brought together, attract that talent by appreciating what, what it brings to the, the mix and serve as hubs within ecosystems of individuals and organizations. And, and that leads, I think, to a very different form of organizational uh, format, right? One that's based more on interaction than on economies of scale. And so a form of organization where surprise and the ability to recognize surprise and capitalize on it is seen as more an advantage than the replication of something that's been done repeatedly in the past. So, so I think that what we'll see is not only will careers change, but the organizations that uh, provide access to the complementary expertise that individuals need will, will change. And we'll have more of a, um, um, a reliance on 
partnerships and relationships than we've had in the past. I think this uh, ties quite neatly with the, some of the conversations we have had around these cloud-based teams and that you actually, you can have part of the team working like outside the organization and part inside the organization. When you were talking, I just got this uh, funny memory from a future work event that I was a couple of weeks ago in Paris. And they had made a survey on what, uh, asking, I don't remember the age group, but children on what you want to uh, be become in the future, right? And before, a common response was like astronaut or, uh, or something like that. And now, uh, if you can guess what <laughs> their response was, YouTuber. I mean, that makes me think that like... Uh, Technology is already pervasive, right? So we are living in the in the internet, and like this is a, just one of many signals of of that, right? And we had also discussed that idea in a few of our recent podcasts. Like, to what extent will it become impossible to separate the organization from the software on which it runs, right? Uh, and management as well from being programmable to some extent and that links into the conversations around web3 and i think i find that quite fascinating when you think how much power you actually could give to developers to design what can happen in decision making and so on and i don't fully sort of grasp the details of it because i'm not a programmer myself but i i start to see that there's potentially a lot of of power that can be embedded in different protocols and and so on which shifts a little bit the responsibility and the and the power in the organization as well. And probably that becomes difficult, like Bill, you were saying that manager might be a couple of decades behind in that. So how can they work then with developers who might have solutions to problems they don't even know in a way? Or, or, or Sina, you know, someone builds something with the expectation that it's supposed to do X, but because the leadership doesn't have the expertise and re relies on, you know, and like you said, the power sits with programmers or DevOps or other people, then, you know, they're simply like in a way left in the dark. And the, the, the power actually is, is not represented by the organizational hierarchy, uh, but rather by in practice, you know, who controls the systems that we're running on. Exactly. So we talk about top management and the people below. But middle management has spent the last 20, 20 years trying to get to the top. They're not looking forward to giving up power. Their, their whole goal has been to amass power. And I'm curious to see, Lisa, because you were also talking, you sit on, on the board of Boson Protocol and you're like obviously looking into this Web3 that is, and you mentioned that those new technologies are also in a way might have more capabilities to deal with governance compared to platforms, for instance. So what do you see there? Well, the protocol is a programmable governance, right? I mean, it, or it can be. Um, and so you're basically explicating a general purpose version of, uh, in the case of Boson, commerce and loyalty. Or, you know, so, so you're, you're, ab you're enabling and providing an infrastructure for something without having to reach in and, and specify every little detail then developers or brands can come in and, and say, we want our currency or our interactions to operate like this or like that. But the idea, for example, like one of the things that, using Boson as an example, one of the things that happens in 
um, in commerce in general is, is there needs to be kind of a mediation because I thought I was going to get this. It was billed to me as that. I paid for that. And what arrived was this other thing. And so there's built into the protocol is, is a kind of arbitration that allows for settling. And if you imagine, you know, like we were talking about increasing surface area, opening up organizations, increasing, therefore, collisions between workers, between cu customers, partners, everyone, right? More surface area, more collisions. Then you're having far more transactions. And if you're building in fundamental aspects of engaging like, like settlement and arbitration, that's huge. So as an example, um, and, and so, you know, yeah, I think in the case of, um, you know, car sharing, car sharing was invented in Europe. I mean, Robin Chase I, told me this years ago, though, is the founder, one of the, the co-founder of Zipcar and a friend. Um, I think it's like 60 now or 65 years ago in Switzerland two women came together and decided that it was a good idea in a community to do car sharing. Well, but it was like a closet at the end of the street in a community. And sometimes people would forget to put the key back and there was really no schedule. And so that friction associated with this good idea of car sharing was outrageous. Technology has allowed us to find the car, to know if it's available, to disappear the need for the key in some cases and all sorts of things. So, it, it allows for those kinds of, hence my book and the work of, uh, that we've done together with Simona and lots of other people around the sharing economy and we share and all of it uh, over the years, uh, was this opportunity of the collision between technology and these ideas of collaboration. And our view, our movie version was in our heads was that the social impact would, would have played out in a, quite a different way. Um, I think a lot of that is, is probably the topic for another conversation. But, you know, fundamentally, the technology of Web3 is allowing for taking old ideas, whether it's collaborative related or in, in the case of, of cooperatives, um, cooperatives tended to not scale hugely because it's, it's complicated. You know, you have a lot of owners and there's a lot of voting and a lot of um, uh, coordination and and doing that across huge distances with different backgrounds and languages and expectations makes it even more challenging. On a Web3 um, scenario with some of, the, some of the ideas that are floating around and uh, you know, this idea of a decentralized autonomous organization or DAO, you can program an organization. So if the four of us wanna start collaborating and we invite everyone listening to this podcast to join us, we, we're not controlling the organization per se, but we're together designing the, the framework or the program that, that the DAO operates on, if that makes sense. I think that we're at the very beginning or a tipping point. I also agree with Simona's comment that, you know, the, I don't know the AGI, but certainly the large language models that are emerging in ChatGPT being a good example is it could be helpful when you're doing research to, to quickly, you know, have a survey of what's available and what's out there. But it could also be hugely operate as a fog machine because it creates an amplifier. It's using what's already out there as a way to bring back to you a kind of 
the, the current latest whatever. And whether they're these, these things are generative in terms of ideas and thinking on its own uh, remains to be seen. But, it, but um, you know, certainly at least my concern is the lack of governance so that we have these models out there. It's, it's the speed at which they potentially can be adding to the volume of information available is frightening and, and, and potentially helpful, but also on one side frightening. And so if it's skewing, um, you know, or biasing stories on the basis of volume, it, it can actually promote and, and accelerate a lot of what we're seeing as fake news or, um, and, and a dissolution, a further dissolution of trust. What I'm perceiving here is uh, when, when Stina brought up this idea of uh, the impossibility of the, or the rising complexity of uh, separating organization from software. I think this is a great point. It's an important point. I recall when I was with uh, with Bill at the Tracker Forum uh, uh, three years ago now, in 2019, it was four years ago. I was listening to the CEO of Burzorg, uh, Jost Block, uh, and he said that uh, Burzorg is uh, transforming bureaucracy into software, basically, right? So they kind of kind of cut the middle management of, of the organization and transform the processes and into software, which is a little bit uh, resonating with what's happening with Web3. In another conversation previously, we had Chase Chapman on the, on the podcast, uh, who is uh, one of the most uh, acute observer of the Web3 uh, movement uh, and part of uh, Metropolis DAO. They have this way to separate what they call uh, Trustware from socialware, and trustware is everything that gets put on chain. So it's uh, recorded in a way that is untamperable, it's public, it's the information we share essentially. Uh, and at the same time, they call socialware all the wet part of organizing, so the way we relate, the processes, the bureaucracies, the habits that we run inside our organizations. One of the things that I'm perceiving here is that uh, we are seeing uh, even more a shift between uh, socialware into trustware or in general into software. So more of what we used to call an organization is being encoded into software, right? And this is happening at all levels. And uh, this is also exerting a uh, strong pressure towards organizations because uh, organizations feel the pressure, for example, of opening up their interfaces. Bezos became famous for his uh, uh, mandate uh, where he basically said all teams need to expose their interfaces. And he was a, a pioneer. No? He probably perceived that the world was moving in a direction where software uh, would have played a much broader, much more important role on how we organize and move up resources and connect uh, capabilities, right? What happens if we bring this to the limits? We have uh, much more modular markets, much more modular organi- uh, much more modular society where we have small teams, small units capable of having large impacts on, on, on society, much more reconfigurable capabilities uh, as an individual i can connect pieces i can create value but the question is at the end of the day for who i'm going to create value and what is the market that is going to buy this value and uh, i think that uh, web3 somehow is trying to use these new capabilities to solve uh, large systemic problems where there are tragedies of incentives 
try to convince everybody that the protocol we're going to use, uh, the rules we're going to set together and govern together are going to make everybody happy and we can organize and everybody can get uh, their own incentives and be happy. But this is not happening. What we are seeing in Web3 in reality is uh, even more diversity, even more complexity. So it's kind of the transition technologies is becoming so, so fast that we couldn't update our culture. We couldn't update our institutions in the background. So we're left with these tremendous modular capabilities and software technologies, and we really can only apply a competitive cultural mindset and the traditional win big, compete, uh, make money mindset that has run the market for the last decades. What is the culture we are left with as we face these massive transitions? A couple of things. First of all, in your last riff, Simona, I'm, one thing I wanted to just say or add or ask is about the network effect. One of the things in culture is a great carrier of the network effect or, or you know, or the reverse is, is also true, right? That meaning that if we're connected, if, if we are, if we're part of the same community or culture, our um, spreading of that, it happens within the trusted organization or the loosely organized connection of the community or whatever, or whatever we're calling that. But the network effect for, for me right now, because of the no more, not yet, and where we are in, as Bill said, the not yet hasn't, it has scaffolding, but there's, there's this still giant abyss between dissolved expectations of the last however many decades and uh, what's going to emerge. And that matches with what you're saying, which is where we are in the life cycle, in my opinion, uh, uh, in this transition is we're in the sort of the radical instability piece. We're in the holy crap, we don't have a floor. Um, everybody start thinking of ideas. Everybody start trying to talk to other people and test stuff. It's also, the, the other thing is, as everyone that's, that's engaged with Web3 or trying to get grasp their head around the blockchain Web3 bingo, is trying to understand what it all means. I think that the, one of the best ways that people are trying to understand what it means is by getting in, trying to create something or to solve a problem using that kind of mentality by joining a, you know, a DAO or buying some coins or jumping into a Discord or something. But there's a lot of people that I know that are in their 20s and 30s that are trying to figure it out. It's not just people who are at the end of their career, they grew up in a corporation. It's, it's a lot of people saying like, wow, I, I don't know what the rules are and I don't really know how to play. And so I think that the fear is benefiting from the network effect. This sort of confusion is benefiting from the network effect. And what I'm wondering is in order to make the, to shrink the chasm between no more and not yet, how do we create and, and I'll uh, do a call back to Bill's comment. Most of us have grown up in an education system that's broken and people coming through for their career education are lost because it's no longer, it, it maybe was never, but it's certainly no longer a, a path. How do we use this kind of space between no more and not yet to create breadcrumbs or, or a footpath? And I think that a lot of what's happening in the Web3 space 
is massive hyper experimentation and ballsy, um, perhaps crazy, but, uh, but ballsy courage of people like trying ideas and seeing if it works and if it doesn't moving on. I don't think that we're at the consolidation phase yet because we're early and um, I'm not even sure that people know yet what they're solving for because a lot of it is kind of like holding up the microphone and trying to figure out which end you're supposed to talk into. Oh, this is cool. I don't know what to do with it exactly. How do we see the consolidation phase happen, the convergent phase uh, during which we, we or, you know, I don't know, I, I don't like to use we, but essentially society converges into trying to enact some solution to the chaos uh, that we are living on, or some coherence in the chaos, in the creative chaos that, that we are living. Is, is there any sign that you see, or at least uh, is there any signal out of the noise uh, that uh, we can capture and see, you know, this is a seed of a more coherent future? Bill, you spoke about S-curves, right? So where is the end of this S-curve uh, or at least is there a plateau where we can aim at uh, reaching coherence back? As Lisa was speaking, I thought about, she said, you know, if we're part of a common network, what if we're not part of a common network, okay? And, I, and I'm trying to get to where you, you're asking, Simone, but it may be a little bit indirect. As I understand ecosystems, the beauty of ecosystems is that they they spotlight opportunities because you bring in other expertise that would be unfamiliar otherwise. And those people, those organizations come with ideas. And usually each of those organizations that you're partnering with at the moment have very different aspirations, very different objective functions than you have. They're orthogonal to what your organization is, but passing in the night, you've got a, a, an opportunity to seize and you seize it. And the ecosystem that we're talking about more often than not is transient locally, but maybe maybe more durable on a, on a larger scale if nobody tries to control it very tightly, if, if, if that makes sense. So it seems to me that maybe the focus on convergence at the moment on a grand scale is not as desirable as focusing on a local scale. And, and recognizing that the transience is where the attractiveness is rather than the permanence. So unlike a value chain, where we know who's doing what, and they're in their tier, and they're in their box, they're doing what they're supposed to do, and we're trying to reduce variance. For me, the beauty of ecosystems is surprise is an opportunity, and we're gaining access to unfamiliar expertise through casual liaisons that might become, if we do it right, might become more reliable in the future, but not rely so reliable that we get locked in permanently. So that focus shifts from the large organization to the small unit, which then becomes the locus of activity for an ecosystem. So you have many ecosystems within ecosystems, networks within networks. And the portfolio that Lisa spoke about the portfolio is lots of small bets that are being placed in parallel. As Mr. John told the, the two of us, we're going to win in the long run, not because we can figure out what's going to happen next, but because we're taking more chances. And, and one or two of them are probably going to be acceptable. Now, how you build an organization that tolerates that degree of confusion um, is, is another matter. 
But my sense is that the future will focus on smaller, more local, more transient types of relationships. The organization will be smaller, so it'll be less difficult to make that work. And maybe the governance system is both in the software that we employ and the modules that we construct to be able to assemble an offering in this sort of complex, ever-moving target market segment. If I can make this a little more realistic, one of the things, Simone mentioned that both of us have done work with Hire. I've had the fortune, good fortune to be involved with them for a long time. One of the things that I'm fascinated by is that you have platforms that are populated by small, what they call micro-enterprises. These platforms have really global views of what they're doing. So they've moved from building washing machines to managing laundry, now to manage clothing. There's no limit to the globalness by which they talk about what they'd like to do. But the way the work is performed is by small micro enterprises that have a very narrow target market, like doing a washout on the balcony. And as a result, they're much more focused on what they're doing than they would otherwise be. They can be more entrepreneurial. They can be much more entrepreneurial and much more engaged and probably much more um, governed, much easierly governed than otherwise. But they can also flourish with variety, the likes of which most of their rivals don't have. I have to say two things, Bill, to what you just laid out. First of all, I mean, maybe three. First one is thanks. The second one is, I I absolutely never said permanence. For me, everything is temporal. And part of the no more is this fiction that we live in, that something can be permanent, that builds our pathetic obsession towards being able to pretend to predict the future. And I think that um, all of what we're talking about, the nature, is our gym, is our kind of way of getting um, fit and moving towards these other models. Because when you look at like murmurations or mycelium, these are models that say, you know, visitors come in and out and they they make contributions, they become part or they don't. It's very like come together, go apart in a very dynamic way. Our legal systems, our laws, our tax codes, our everything, our, our educational systems can't keep up with that model. Um, uh, but it, all of those things have to implode and get reimagined in order to create something that's going to make any sense, given the speed with which things are being invited to be reimagined. Yes. Yeah. And, and you're, I stand corrected. You never said permanent. And, and, and I, I took advantage of that. <laughs> no, I just um, I just because it's no, no, no. Take advantage of me anytime. But uh, but but it, I never think anything's permanent. So a few a few sessions ago, this in this season of podcasts, Scott Brinkert spoke about customers get relief. I think relief. He didn't say that, but I'm saying it. Um, they get relief from the reliability of the customer experience, some reliability, uh, perhaps a brand or perhaps, so So I do think that part of the governance mechanism is, is vested in these interfaces where you've got to, if you have a smart kitchen, you've got to use the same connectivity system. You've got to use the same voice activation system just so that the con- customer experience makes sense. 
But I think that that's up for grabs in the long run. I think it, I think experimentation and getting close to the customer so you understand what the customer's interests are could, could change that. But I think there has to be some deference paid to the consumer's need for reassurance that, that this is going to work, that it's going to work the way you want. When it doesn't work, we're going to come take it off your hands. And so I guess the piece that was missing in, in, in what I said earlier was that one of the legitimate members of the ecosystem is the co-creating customer who enters into this relationship because they have a customer need that's gone unfulfilled. And they have an idea about how it feels, what it looks like, where it's going, something like that. And then they become a shareholder in the outcome of that idea, of, you know, a shareholder in the value created. You know, one thing also, um, Bill, that you just reminded me of is uh, the these two characters uh, did an interview with Joe Justice a while back as well. And in that conversation, um, it, Joe talked about the role of DevOps in, in how uh, governments should act like DevOps, which I thought, by the way, was really bloody genius. And I'm going to steal it, Joe. Um, but, and I recommend Stina steals it too. But, um, but besides that, um, when you were talking and giving your example, I was thinking, you know, that's the role of brands. That brands, if, if, they, if brands can host many, many experiments, many, many collisions, and create kind of the, the verification process for this lives up to our promise, you know, that, that allows um, a whole new model for product development and distribution and IP sharing and, um, and creates kind of a real, uh, you know, retains a value for a brand whilst creating a, a, a current model that um, doesn't mean that they have to control everything, quite the contrary. I feel it's going to be hard to wrap such a depth, but I think one thing that is worth um, underlining is suggestions that markets uh, and society, but mainly markets, I would say, are going to be increasingly diverse. Variance is going to be uh, much more important in, in markets of the future. Bill, you spoke about small bets and optionality. That was great because I was actually literally taking that same note as you were speaking. So this idea of uh, individuals, employees, uh, uh, now having to deal with uh, uh, building much more optionality into their careers, uh, companies distributing their products across different ecosystems. Lastly, when I was thinking about protocols as ways to uh, agree and converge, your conversation made me think about protocols uh, um, instead as uh, essentially ways we can use uh, to uh, agree uh, on how we disagree. So essentially thinking about protocols more like enablers of variants instead of creators of coherence. And I, I was reconnecting this with something that I, I'm doing, some work I'm doing with a customer these days, where they are kind of creating a protocol internally for their own teams to build modular products. And I think uh, this is something that I want to really underline. Maybe we don't have to converge, but maybe in the future of markets, we have to agree to disagree and agree the, about the ways we create more more variance in the market and, and 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 that's something that I want to bring up.
Before we, we leave the conversations today, uh, we want to ask the two of you to leave uh, the listeners with some of the breadcrumbs. As I think about what we've just talked about, tagline might be, exciting times deserve exciting organizations. And most of the organizations that I see on a day-to-day basis are anything but exciting. And, and so I think we need to rekindle organizationally and, and through leadership as well. Leadership should be a verb, not a noun, and we should, we should begin to rekindle excitement in, in, around the work being performed. One big orientation for me is peripheral vision. So I try hard to look on in weird uh, scenarios, cookbooks, uh, nature, strange conversations in, in other languages. Uh, and I find that the intersections of things that don't normally go together are fertile ground for, for seeing something new and that I've been struggling with. Uh, a book that I'm really enchanted with these days, uh, friends of mine have what's called the, the Near Future Laboratory, uh, Fabian Giardin. And uh, the book is called uh, Design Fiction. It's really fantastic handbook for thinking about uh, modeling the, the future. Um, and the second thing is uh, this woman who's a researcher in, in British Columbia called Suzanne Samard, who wrote a book called Finding the Mother Tree and does an amazing, uh, amazing work about um, the relationship of mycelium and trees and communities. And I, I find that a lot of that work I, really inspirational and, and really thought provoking when it comes to these topics, DAOs, organizations, trust, um, community. It's a good little pot to stir for me anyway. Great stuff. So more, more excitement and in, in leadership uh, uh, as a verb yeah, checking out these references. So, well, thank you b- both so much for time with us uh, again, coming back. It doesn't feel like so long ago, but uh, it was really uh, great to have you back here. I hope you also enjoyed it. Yes, it was lovely. It's always fun. Thanks to you guys. It was great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for joining us. I mean, uh, uh, I think I need to really listen to the podcast and, and, you know, kind of surface some more insights for our listeners, but I will do definitely in the coming weeks. Yeah, and uh, for our listeners, as always, you can find uh, the links and uh, references to both Bill and Lisa's work and what was mentioned in the conversations at boundaryless.io slash resources slash podcast. Look out for uh, Bill Fisher and Lisa Gansky and you will find everything you need. And until we meet again, remember to think boundaryless. It's always great to touch base with people of, of the deep experience of Bill and Lisa and, um, and yeah, you know, the idea of synchronized head scratching, uh, it's priceless. Yeah, indeed. Uh, you always get great expressions from Lisa and uh, really food for thought. The other one that I took was this uh, idea of peripheral vision. So looking sideways when looking into the future to really spot those uh, weak signals of, of what's really happening.